How did Jeff Bezos realize you could sell anything on the internet? Why did Bill Gates create Control-Alt-Delete? How did synchronized swimming prepare Christine Lagarde for international politics? What made Bob Iger bet big on Marvel? And what inspired Diane von Furstenberg to create the wrap dress? On The David Rubenstein Show, peer-to-peer conversations, I uncover the untold stories of the world's most successful leaders. Listen now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to For the Ages, a history podcast presented by the New York Historical Society and hosted by David Rubenstein. Join us as he deftly explores the rich and complex history of the United States with some of the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers, because history matters. This is Douglas Frankly here, and what a thrill it is to get to interview David Rubenstein on his new book, How to Lead. I've read it not once, but twice. It's been hard to miss David doing various shows on it because there's just no more timely book. I mean, he got to interview really the smartest and best minds of America. And it's all been distilled this wisdom into this extraordinary book. And I thought of you, David, when Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, uh, not only were your interviews being um, placed on television, but I was wondering, what it was like talking to her and what you what what lessons you think we should all um, take from that incredible life of uh, the notorious RBG. Well, I got to know her not because I'm a lawyer or a business person, but because I've been the chair of the Kennedy Center and she was a terrific lover of opera and classical music. So she would come fairly, fairly frequently. And whenever she was in the audience, I would say, and Justice Ginsburg is here, and she would get a 20-minute standing ovation. Um, I've introduced presidents of the United States, and they've never gotten a 20-minute standing ovation. She would always get it because people admired her for so many things. But I think when I got to know her reasonably well in other settings, I realized that what she had done is overcome many different handicaps, or I should say disadvantages in life. Um, And she uh, overcame them with just grit and, and her brilliant brain. She was a very diminutive person. Uh, I doubt if she weighed 100 pounds when I knew her, but her brain must have been 98 of those 100 pounds. She just had such an incredible brain that you just loved talking to her, but she was complicated to interview for this reason. When you ask a person a question, normally in the normal human discourse, you expect an answer relatively quickly. But she would sit there for like 10 or 15 or 20 seconds thinking about what she was saying. How dare she actually think about an answer as opposed to just blurting out something. But she would sit there and she would think very carefully what she wanted to say. And you didn't know whether she was having a senior moment or whether she was just not happy with the question. But it turns out she was actually thinking through carefully how to give a good response. And then she gave a great response. If if a young person asked you, maybe somebody um, watching and listening right now, what they can learn from the legacy of Justice Ginsburg. Uh, what, what about her that they could maybe learn in a leadership lesson from? Well, you should not take no for an answer. Um, one of the things I talk about in the book is uh, persistence. Now, without being obnoxious about it, but persistence is very important. And she was very persistent. She uh, was told that she um, couldn't get a job in a major law firm because she was a woman, she was Jewish, she was pregnant at the time, she was looking for it, and people just didn't uh, hire those kind of people then, but she was persistent and ultimately uh, you know, found some way to get back into uh, major academic and major legal work. Um, so I would say persistence, taking advantage of the, the skills that you have, 
but also I think one of the great things that she had was the ability to communicate. And I tell people all the time that if you're gonna be a leader, uh, what you have to do is have followers. How do you get followers? Well, you can get them maybe in three ways. One, you write very well, as she did, uh, and you learn to write and people will be persuaded. You learn to talk very well and very uh, coherently, as she did, and you can get followers. But you also do one other thing that she did extremely well, which is you can get people to follow you if you get them to, if you show them how to lead by example. In other words, you set a role model, and as a role model, people will follow you. And while she was a great talker and a great writer of legal opinions, I think it's her role model role that merely had her great influence with so many young people. So I tell young people, try to, and I would tell young people, try to figure out how to master these arts of persuasion, how to communicate orally and in writing, but also how to communicate what you want by leading by example, by being a role model, by doing the things that you think others should do. Well, one of the people you cover in the book is Oprah Winfrey, who certainly right. knows how to communicate. How did you get to the opportunity to do the interview with Oprah Winfrey? And the same question, what, what can be learned by her, her legendary career in broadcasting and popular culture? Well, when I became the chairman of the Kennedy Center, the first year I was chairman, we uh, had a uh, Kennedy Center honors and she was received it that year. And so I uh, got to know her then. And then on a couple occasions in the Obama White House, she was there for dinner and I was there for dinner and I got to know her then. Uh, but I actually was helped in getting the, uh, it organized by Gail King, who was a, one of her best friends and somebody I know reasonably well also. So uh, it took a while to get it organized because she's got a very complicated life. And then uh, when we did the interview, I realized, um, you know, she didn't, need an, she didn't need an interviewer. I mean, she's the best interviewer of them all, so she didn't need me. I was just like a prop. And uh, what she would say is that she's not a great interviewer. She's a great listener. And the skill set that she had is being a listener. And in the course of that interview, um, I asked her, well, look, it's clear President Trump had just been elected. It's clear you don't have any, need any government experience to be elected president. So you don't have any government experience. Why don't you consider running for president? And she thought about it and flirted with it for a while and then kind of said no. Later, she maybe uh, played with it a little bit longer after her, her, her speech she gave at, I think, the Globe, a Golden Globes Award. But actually, I, I said in the book that in the end, she came to the conclusion that being Oprah is better than being president. And she's probably right. Well, they, you did deal. You talked to two presidents that you cover in the book, George W. Bush and Bill Clinton. What was it like spending time with President Clinton, and how long have you known him for? Well, I've known him for a while because when I worked in the White House for President Carter, we we did something that hurt him, and so I I, I heard about it from him for many times. We took the Marielle boat people, and after promising him we wouldn't put him in Arkansas, we put him in Arkansas, which probably led to his not not getting reelected the first time he ran for reelection. So he remembered that. And I got to know him over the years in various uh, uh, events and so forth. Um, and this particular interview occurred in Texas at the Bush Library. We were doing an event to, to close out the year for the Presidential Scholars Program that President Bush and President Clinton have worked on very, very carefully. And, um, you know, I was asking her mostly about in the interview what it's like, both of them, what it's like to be a former president. Because I often thought that being a former president is the best job in the world. Nobody criticizes you. You can see anything, do anything. They said, well, it's nice, but actually there's nothing quite like being president because you have the power to help people and there's nothing quite like that. And there's no job that you can help as many people as you can being president of the United States. So they both missed the job. Um, and I'd say, while they're different individuals and different personalities uh, and came from completely different backgrounds, they bonded now in a lot of philanthropic things and they get along quite well, um, although nobody would have predicted that 20 years ago or so. Uh, well, you know, you 
over on the Carlisle Group, and you've seen a lot of Washington power brokers of the year. Uh, what made Bill Clinton such a remarkable politician, the ability to win a two-term presidency, to win the governorship in Arkansas so many times, even have his wife come a heartbeat away from being president? In the book, I say that your life can be divided into thirds. And the first third, um, you know, you get Rhodes Scholars and, and Supreme Court clerks and the superstars, and very often they don't turn out in the second and third third of life to be as successful. They might have coasted for a while, they don't want to work as hard, or they had bad luck and they didn't have bad luck in the beginning, the first third. That the people running the world usually are the people that do pretty well in the second and third third of their life, and they weren't likely to be the superstars in the beginning. So very often, if you go back to anybody's, everybody's listening, think about it in your high school class. Whoever were the student body president or the class president or in college, the Rhodes Scholars or the Supreme Court clerks, if you went to law school, what happened to these people? I'm sure they did okay, but they generally are not running the world the way that some people who are now running the world were, were able to overcome not being so talented as they were young. In Bill Clinton's case, he's a rare exception. He was a Rhodes Scholar, the only Rhodes Scholar to be president of the United States. It was said that being a Rhodes Scholar made it was a curse because nobody who actually uh, was supposed to be a great leader at that age actually ever had been president of the United States until Bill Clinton came along. And so he came from very modest background. His biological father died before he was born. Um, he, he raised by a single mother, no money uh, to speak of. And yet he, he turned out to have a, an incredible brain. He just had an ability to um, remember things in ways that other people couldn't. He had ability to have a gift of gab. He could connect with people in ways that all of us would dream to. So you could go into any room and he would quickly become the best friend of all the people there. So we just had a, 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 both an electric brain, ability to connect kind of different points of view and, and connect different things. And also he actually liked people. You have to like people when you're in politics, though sometimes people in politics don't like people, but he liked people and he liked talking to people. That's what his secret of success was. Well, George W. Bush was clearly not a Rhodes Scholar. He was uh, a bit of a, a rowdy young man, maybe let's uh, sort of a C, B minus kind of guy. Um, how did he turn his life around? He had had some part right. problems when he was young. Um, where, what, where did he become, uh, uh, develop such leadership traits? It's a lot easier to rise up from modest circumstances than it is to um, become very successful if your father is famous or wealthy because you have some disadvantages. So if your father is president of the United States, it's not as big an advantage as you might think. Now, his father was president of the United States when George Bush was generally a fully formed adult. But as a young man, as you suggest, he was more of a uh, fraternity playboy kind of guy and a big drinker. And in fact, as he later said when he gave a commencement speech at Yale, all of you out there who are A students, you're gonna be successful. B students, you'll do pretty well. But some of you C students out there, you might turn out to be president of the United States someday. So how did he turn his life around? Well, at the age of 40, he had some drinking problems, as he, as he admitted. And he basically went cold turkey. His wife said, you got to give this up. He did. And then basically decided to make something of, him, of himself and prove his family wrong. His family never thought that he would mount to anything. They thought that Jeb would be the superstar. And in fact, they were so unconvinced that he would actually be successful that when he ran for governor of Texas the first time, his mother didn't think he would make it, told him not to run. And, the, the, and George Herbert Walker Bush and Barbara Bush chartered a jet to go celebrate the uh, victory of Jeb Bush that night when Jeb lost. They, did, they thought Jeb was going to win and George was going to lose. It turned out the opposite. So he turned his life around, and he's a really good example of how you can turn your life around and although people have made fun of his intellect and so forth, the truth is he does have a lot of intellectual curiosity 
and he was obsessed with reading books. He's a big book reader, as you probably know. And he and his father and other people would always have uh, contests about who could read the most books in a certain period of time. And I mean, pretty weighty books. So he's now made himself into a post-president who doesn't want to get involved in public policy. He's a painter, and he's done pretty good things at the Bush Center, but completely different people, uh, he and, and Clinton. You cover some of the tech giants, um, the A-list named people in our society. On uh, Bill Gates, now with uh, the novel coronavirus sweeping the world, he has really stepped up to be a spokesperson about pandemics. Tell me about what you've learned from uh, Bill Gates. When you think about it, Bill Gates for 25 years or so was the richest man in the world. Throughout most of organized history, the richest man in the world, whoever that person was, was generally reclusive, was generally hard to approach, was, you didn't see this person, you didn't really know what he was about. So think about this. For a while, Howard Hughes was the richest man in the United States, and he died more or less a recluse. J. Paul Getty was for a long time the richest man in the United States, and more or less you know, was fairly reclusive. That's what rich people tend to do. They cut themselves off from society. Bill Gates didn't do that. He ran his company until he was in his early 50s, and then he set out to become, I think, the world's greatest philanthropist ever. And so he's engaged in things. And uh, Bill has, um, you know, an incredible intellect. He can process information in a way that the average person can't. And so he's not, you know, uh, a person who got lucky by discovering something or, or just some uh, connection. Had Bill Gates tried almost anything, he would be successful. He might not have built a company as valuable as Microsoft, but he would have been successful in almost anything he did because his brain is just so good at processing information. And very often, people that have that brain processing power that is really, really good and has the intellectual firepower of Bill Gates say, I don't want to work that hard. I don't need to work because I'm already so smart. He was rare in that he was willing to work very hard and also be that smart. That's a very unusual combination. Why did you mention that some people that are very wealthy want to cut themselves off? I find that to be true in my reading of American history. Uh, but what, what's, why has that become a kind of norm, do you think? I think it was a norm. Uh, I think now probably not the case. And Jeff Bezos is pretty active, and you can see him, and he's pretty accessible. I think for a while, people were, um, uh, had so much wealth. John D. Rockefeller is another example. He was, uh, in many ways, the wealthiest man in the world at the time. Uh, but he was cut off from society, I guess, because people thought they were different. They felt that uh, maybe there were security risks of people going trying to attack them in some ways. I just think they didn't have the social skills once they made this much money, and they kind of cut themselves off from society. Look at Howard Hughes. Became a recluse for the last 10 years of his life. He basically was, nobody ever saw him. And, um, you know, it's unlike what uh, I think we, we expect wealthy people today. Because I think today there's a feeling that if you have this much wealth, you have a social responsibility to do something with that money. Whereas in the old days, people would say, okay, you've got all this money, you're going to buy a lot of homes, a lot of artwork, all the, uh, the, the accoutrements of wealth. And people didn't say, Howard Hughes, what's your social responsibility? What are you doing to make the world a better place? Whereas today we've changed it. And I think to make the world a better place, you have to engage with the world. You have to be with people. And that's why I think wealthy people today are more involved in society than they were before. Yeah, I, I think of Bill Gates and also Warren Buffett, who is in your book, and the whole giving pledge idea. Uh, how important is the giving pledge? What, what has, have you seen this giving pledge do to help America and the world? And then tell me a little bit about Warren Buffett. Okay, well, on the giving pledge, uh, it was an idea that Warren had, and he kind of tried it out on a couple people, David Rockefeller Sr. and others, and, and then Bill and Melinda Gates and, and the three of them really came together. And the idea was, it's now about 10 or 11 years old, that 
people who have a net worth of a billion dollars would say, I'm going to give away upon my uh, death or during my lifetime roughly half of my net worth. Now, that was a gigantic ask because generally people would say, well, I might tith, which say I'll give away 10%. Many churches had said, give away 10% and you're a very philanthropic person. Giving away 50% is a lot. And so they weren't sure how many people would sign up. Um, there were 40 of us. I was one of them at the very beginning that signed up. And we now have about 200 or so. I would say about 85% of them are from the United States because the United States is by far the most philanthropic country. Um, if all the, the people that have signed up for this uh, were to give away 100% of their net worth, it won't make that much difference in the world unless other people who are less wealthy do the same. In other words, I've often said the giving pledge is nice as a symbol, and it's good to have this, these people give away money, but the, the needs are so great that unless middle class people or upper middle class people or people that aren't worth a billion dollars are giving away a reasonable percentage of their net worth, you're not going to make a difference. And so I think it's important it's really in, in, trying to sim, in trying to get other people to do something who are not quite as wealthy. In terms of Warren Buffett, I've known him for a very long time. He's, uh, he hasn't changed. I mean, he's now, he just celebrated his 90th birthday. He, he realizes he's a great investor and he's made a lot of money, but it makes no difference to him. The accoutrements of wealth are meaningless. He bought his home, I think, in 1957, still living in the same home in Omaha. He doesn't care about the wealth. He just likes to invest and and, and he's a person who has a, a very good self-deprecating sense of humor. And, uh, you know, his real passions in life are playing bridge or things like that or, or, or reading annual reports. So sometimes people have an image that is not the reality. It's a fake image that a lot of PR people may have uh, can't come up with for them. But Warren's image is exactly what he is. He's down home. He's, he's, he's not fancy. Doesn't, doesn't, and when, when I was doing the interview of him for this book, um, he drove up in his car, um, he was then probably 87 years old, drove up in his car, got out himself, no driver, gets out, we go into his favorite restaurant at Goratz in uh, Omaha, and then, um, you know, he orders, I think it was like a, you know, a Salisbury steak with gravy and some french fries, and then, uh, you know, like an apple pie for dessert, not the healthiest things probably, and, um, you know, he, uh, he paid for it. And then he went back and he realized maybe he hadn't left enough of a tip. I think he left a two or three dollar tip. He went back and put another dollar on. You know, he doesn't realize how much money he really has in many ways because to him, it's just not uh, the same as it is to other people. He, just, he doesn't view it as, as being able to buy him something. something. He just does it as a, as a way of enjoying the intellectual pursuit of, of, of building companies. What about Jeff Bezos, who you mentioned briefly? What's he like? And he seems to be this omnipresent figure in modern times, whether it's space or the or tech, in uh, technology, what's he in everything he's done with Amazon? What's he like, and how did how has Amazon become such a powerful economic engine for the United States? Well, think about it. Uh, Jeff is a smart person, very smart. Uh, he was a valedictorian of his class in high school. He went to high school in Miami and went to Princeton. And when I interviewed him, um, he was saying he wanted to be a nuclear uh, physicist. And then he was having, he had a problem in nuclear physics course he was taking and he couldn't quite figure it out. So he went down the hallway to ask somebody to solve it and this other person fixed it right away. And Jeff realized right away, this guy can solve this problem right away. I couldn't figure it out after hours. And of course, after this interview, everybody's wondering what happened to this guy that Jeff Bezos said was the smartest guy in his class was a nuclear physicist. Well, they, the press tracked him down. He's, I think, a one or two person consulting firm in, in, in somewhere in Southern California. So you never know who's gonna turn out to be successful. Uh, in terms of you know building big companies. And Jeff Bezos was a smart guy. He was working in a hedge fund. 
but all of a sudden he read about the internet and said, I can sell things over the internet. People didn't even know what the internet was and he decided to build this company, but only to sell books over the internet. That was all he was gonna do. The brilliant idea was not selling books over the internet. There were a number of people already doing that. He thought he could do it slightly better. And when I went out and visited him the first time, uh, uh, because our company helped him get off the ground a little bit, um, he was doing, he was doing the, the books himself. In other words, in the early days, people forget this, but when he started in 1994, if you ordered a book over his internet site, he would then send the email to the publisher. The publisher would then send him the book. He would then package it up in an Amazon uh, wrapping, and then he would take it to the post office himself every night. And so it was a very small operation. Um, at the time, um, he offered us, uh, when he was getting started, I think 20 to 30% of the company to help him get started. We turned it down. We took some cash. I later asked to give me the stock instead. He said he didn't quite think he needed to give me 20 to 30% anymore because you know, the company was already off the ground. But he gave us about 1% of the company, and I had so little confidence in it, I sold it at the IPO. That cost about 6 or $7 billion. Uh, Jeff is an intellectually uh, rigorous person. He is very um, uh, interested in many ideas. As you know, he's putting a billion dollars a year into the space program. He's financing it all himself. And, and interestingly, he's still running the company. He's in his early 50s, now, I guess 53 or 54 now, maybe almost 55. Bill Gates had retired pretty much by that age. John D. Rockefeller retired at 47. So uh, he's really running a company with the kind of net worth they have at this age. It's very unusual. And I, I, don't, I don't, can't speak for him, but I don't know how much longer he wants to do this. He says he wants to keep doing it for a long time. But at some point, he might say, I'm worth $200 billion. Maybe I'll figure out how to give it away uh, and, and put more time into it. And he believes a lot in order to make money or be a great contributor, you have to follow your heart quite a bit, right? Intuition and heart. Yes. Anybody that says... I want to make a billion dollars. I don't know how I, I don't care how I'm going to do it. I'm just going to make a billion dollars. That rarely happens. I mean, obviously some people go into business and they might get lucky, but as a general rule of thumb, it's people who have an idea. They want to prove the idea is right. Steve Jobs wanted to prove personal computers could work. Bill Gates wanted to prove software was important. Jeff Bezos wanted to prove you could sell things over the internet, uh, initially just books and then everything else. And that's the brilliant idea of selling everything else over the internet. So it's not that you want to make money that's going to enable you to make money. It's the idea you have an idea that's a passion to make you go forward and build this company and prove your ideas right. And, and once you've proven it's right, the satisfaction of proving it right is more fun than and all the money that might accrue to you in, in, in the view of most of these people. You deal with uh, tech pioneer um, Eric Schmidt also. Tell me about Schmidt um, and um, why did you decide to include him in this book? Eric Schmidt is very interesting because generally uh, people that have uh, built companies from start um, are the people who make staggering sums of money. Um, he's very, very, very wealthy, um, even though he wasn't the founder, but he was there pretty much at the ground floor. And uh, what happened was the two guys who came up with the idea for building um, Google, they were given money by a couple of venture firms and they were told to go get an adult, they were very young, to run the company. And after about a year and a half or two years, they hadn't gotten anybody to run it. The venture people went to them and said, give us the money back. You're wasting our money. And they said, no, we're not giving it back. They eventually said, okay, we'll go find somebody. So they kind of had a complicated interview process and they interviewed Eric Schmidt and he came in and he took the job. And he, I think he was very helpful providing what was then called adult supervision. And he had a very interesting story in the interview. He was the CEO of the company. They have a very unusual culture then at Google and they still do. Um, uh, one day he goes away for, for about a week. He comes back and there's somebody in his office. And he says to this person, well, what are you doing here? He said, well, I'm a young employee. I just started working here. Your office was empty. 
And uh, somebody said, I could use it. And he said, well, you know, I'm the CEO of the company. I'm used to having my own office. And the guy said, well, that's okay. I won't take much of your space. And the guy stayed there and actually Eric uh, became friendly with him and he felt the guy actually had done a good job. So Eric uh, um, has made himself now into a really talented advisor to governments, state governments and federal governments on science and technology. He's left the company, but he's really uh, got a, a terrific understanding of technology and, and its impact on society. And I think he's making a real contribution post Google. Uh, what about Tim Cook? Well, Tim Cook is an interesting story. Generally, um, some of you may remember, and I don't know if you're a basketball fan or not, but John Wooden, before Coach K came along, there was John Wooden. And I think he won 12 national titles. And uh, when he retired, somebody succeeded him. That person lasted for two years because you can't succeed a legend because the legend is so wonderful. So nobody thought that anybody could succeed Steve Jobs. He was the legendary, brilliant uh, innovator who came up with the iPhone, the iPad, the, uh, the iPod, and, and, and the Mac computer and all these other things. When he died, tragically, uh, Tim Cook was designated to be the CEO. He'd taken the job just a few weeks before Steve died. And people said, how can this guy survive? He's low key, he's not charismatic, he's very soft spoken, um, but he turned out he was the opposite of Steve, but that was what the company needed. So when Steve died, the market value of the company was roughly 350 billion. Today it's roughly 2 trillion. So it's done extremely well. And that's because he has a different style of leadership, more collegial, more um, collaborative. And that's exactly what turned out that, that Apple needed at this time. You're mentioning Coach uh, Wooden and UCLA, and uh, you also include in the books um, sports uh, figures. Tell me what made you pick Jack Nicholson, um, Jack, Jack Nicholson, golfer. Well, I made a speech. I was making a speech in Florida on a philanthropic topic. And somebody told me that Jack Nicholas was going to be in the audience. And I said, well, that's great. I, I'd never met him before. I don't play golf. I play miniature golf, but not golf. Golf is too frustrating, humiliating, and so forth. So I never really played it. Miniature golf, I'm a little better at. So he was there, and he came up to me afterwards, and he said, uh, I came because I'm very involved in philanthropy now, and the subject of my talk was philanthropy. And so we talked, and eventually I said, hey, 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 let's talk about philanthropy. How about let me do an interview of you? And he said, sure. And he ultimately flew up to New York. And it turns out that he's now spending most of his life now raising money for the Nicholas uh, Children's uh, Hospitals, which are in Florida. And they, they've named them, I think the Miami Children's Hospitals renamed it the Nicholas family after they've been very involved in raising money and giving money to it. Um, you know, he's a very low key person. I obviously met him, I'm not, I'd never met him before, but I, I've seen him over the years. And you never know when you meet a famous person up close, whether they're really nice or not nice, but he's as low key as you could possibly want. Doesn't brag about what he did. Uh, all talks about all the luck he had. But one of the interesting things he said is even though he was a golf pro and running around the world for 25 plus years, his rule was never be away from your family for more than two weeks at a time. And as a result of that, he's been married now 60 years. I think he has five children and 22 or 23 grandchildren, an incredibly close relationship with his, uh, with his family. Yes. And it's, uh, I was glad you included him in there. And also, I was amazed you, uh, you wrote and interviewed Adam Silver. What right. made you decide uh, to pick Adam Silver, and I'm not sure everybody knows who he is, okay. so why don't you tell us? Adam Silver, um, I, like me, went to Duke University and University of Chicago Law School, so maybe that's why I put him in, but actually, he's the NBA commissioner, and I asked him to serve on the Duke board just as I was getting off as my term as chair, and I realized right away, he's a really, really smart guy, and as the NBA commissioner, as soon as he took over, he realized he had to get rid of one of the uh, uh, owners who had made some very racist statements, and he did. And that was very unusual to force an owner out. And now he's probably 
to come up with the, the best plan for how to conduct a sports uh, situation in a healthy way with the, with the kind of bubble they have at the NBA. He's really admired by the players and by the, uh, by the owners. And uh, he's done a wonderful job as, uh, as the NBA commissioner, has a job that everybody would probably say they'd like to have, be the commissioner of the NBA. But he's not let it go to his head. And he's very modest and unassuming. And if you had dinner with him, you could have dinner with him for two hours. And unless you raise the subject of basketball, he wouldn't talk about it because he wouldn't want to let everybody know that's what he does for a job for a living. He, he is conversant on so many other subjects, but he doesn't like to brag about himself. Very modest and unassuming. Now, the one person I never would have picked you, including in the book, I had I, I laughed when I thought he was included, Lauren Michaels. Right. How did Lauren Michaels get in, involved with you? And what was it that... Uh, and, made you decide to include him? Well, um, it's a show that I've watched for some 40 years, and um, it just shows you the serendipity of life. I was at a New York, uh, uh, going to a Christmas party in New York, and on the elevator was Lauren Michaels. And I said, hey, I'm David Rubenstein. He said, yeah, I've seen your interview show. And I said, oh, I've seen your show on too, as well. And then I followed up with him, and I got to know him a little bit. And I, I, I got him to agree to do an interview. Now, he doesn't do a lot of interviews. He just yeah. doesn't like to do that. He's rare to do it. And I got him to open up about it. And you think about it, he took the job on him when he was 30 years old. He got the job of being the producer of what now called Saturday Night Live at 30 years old. He's been, the show's been on for 45 years. He, he took a five-year leave, but he's been doing it for 40 years. And you think about it, it, it to be able to do a, a comedy show for 40 years and keep up with comedy because he's changed. As he pointed out, many of the things that were funny 30 years ago, 20 years ago, you can't say anymore. You know, I thought it was brilliant that you included him because uh, Lauren Michaels has really changed the American landscape, not just- uh, He has. Also Saturday, you know, they, he can influence presidential elections on the way a particular skit takes off. He, he has, remember, when he first started, it was Gerald Ford who was uh, the bumbling person that, that uh, Chevy Chase was playing. But I did, he didn't really want me to ask him who was the funniest of them all because, you know, that's like asking which of your children do you like the best. He, he couldn't answer that. You know, some people don't realize Bob Woodward actually wrote a book about John Belushi. That's uh, right. Many years ago. And, uh, and, and some of the amazing cast of, of um, legendary talent out of that show. So I enjoyed that part of the book. And he, as you mentioned, you never see him doing interviews. Well, I tell you, to get ready for the interview, he said, come and watch me. Uh, produced a show one time. So I went to the show and I'm standing next to him for like, you know, the entire hour and a half or so. And, you know, he just walks around from one part of the set to the other. And I'm standing there walking. Everybody's wondering who I am and what I'm doing there. But uh, he was very gracious about it, explained everything. And um, it's quite a scene to see how that show is put together. Yeah, but I've never gotten a chance to do that. I wish I could go see it. That's on my bucket list, David, of one thing. Well, he told me that uh, after the show's over, they have a, uh, an after party. But he said, as he's gotten older, he doesn't go to the after-after party. Oh, yeah, that's <laughs> Or the after-after-after-after party. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's about 4 a.m. You also had in there Phil Knight. Tell us about Phil Knight. Well, Phil Knight I got to know because I've served on the Brookings board with him. And he comes to all the Brookings board meetings. He, he dresses different than the other board members. He wears sunglasses. You can't see whether he's sleeping or not, so we don't really know. And he doesn't wear socks. And he's got Nike shoes on. Um, he's very modest and unassuming, and he had written a book called Shoe Dog, which is explaining how he came up with the idea when he was in Stanford Business School about building a company like this, and he went out to do it. But he doesn't take credit for it. He talks credit for all the other people that that kind of helped him, and he's very philanthropic, a gigantic philanthropist, but low-key. 
He's had some tragedies in his life. One of his sons died in a, in a tragic accident. He has one other son. And he's uh, a very committed family person and uh, as nice as you're going to get. But if you were to sit down and have dinner with him, you can have dinner for two hours and he wouldn't tell you what he did. He wouldn't tell you. He's very interested in history, as I am and as you are. And so he can talk about American history uh, for two hours and he wouldn't even mention Nike. I, I wanted to ask you about um, Nancy Pelosi in the book. And also, how do you think history is going to view Nancy Pelosi and, and, and her tenure as Speaker of the House? Nancy and I both come from Baltimore. She's a few years older than me, so I didn't really know her growing up. But we kind of bonded over the fact that we grew up in Baltimore. And um, her father was mayor of Baltimore and also a congressman and a very politically important family. She had, I think, four brothers, all of whom were you know, supposed to go into politics, and one of them also became mayor as well. But she did what young women did in those days. She went to a college, but then she met her husband, who was from Georgetown uh, University. They married, and they moved eventually to California, where he was from, Paul Pelosi. And she had five children, and she raised those five children uh, And while he was building their, their family uh, company. And so uh, she had no interest in going to politics. And then she volunteered, did some work in California, eventually got put on the Library Commission by Mayor Aliotto. And then when her good friend, Sala Burton, was on her deathbed, Sala Burton, a congresswoman from San Francisco, said, I want you to succeed me. And Nancy said, okay, and she did. Now she's become, in the 230, 40 year history of this country, by far, without doubt, the most politically powerful woman that's ever existed exist in this country. She's been Speaker of the House twice now, and she has unlimited power in the House of Representatives, and she can you know, get things done that nobody else can. So when history is written, I think it'll be saying that she had uh, incredible power for a woman, certainly. And while down the road, it won't be that unusual for a woman to have that much power. It has been historically. So I think she's quite impressive. Uh, she has been seen by some as too far to the left, but she basically represents her party. And I don't think she's uh, different from her party. Last one I'm going to ask, who is Jamie Dimon and why is, did you include him in the book if people don't know? Everybody in the financial no. world, of course, knows, but others that may not. Jamie Dimon is... Uh, a smart guy who went to Harvard Business School and then turned down jobs at Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley to work for his friend, who was really a friend of his father's, um, Sandy Weil. And uh, he worked there and they built up a great company. They ultimately made it, built it into Citicorp. And then he got fired by uh, Sandy Weil and had to start life all over again. I approached Jamie at that time and said, why don't you come into private equity? Jeff Bezos approached him about going to Amazon. But Jamie realized he was a banker. And so he ultimately got a job to go out to Chicago, run the First National Bank of Chicago, and then, or Bank One, and then, and then he uh, sold it to, to uh, J.P. Morgan and became the CEO. And in that time, he's become the world's greatest banker, without doubt. I'm not sure who number two is, but he, he's number one. And as I say in the, my introduction, I think that the only person that really J.P. Morgan himself would be happy succeeded him is Jamie Dimon, because he's the ultimate greatest banker. And Jamie has said, look, I'd like to be president of the United States. I realize I'm not going to be nominated to be president of the United States. I'm not going to get the job. So my contribution to society is running a bank and running it as well as possible. That's what I'm doing to make the country better. You know, David, what you do better than anybody else I know is you're able to see people in our modern times, but you imagine how they'll be viewed 100 or 200 years from now. And meaning you've, you're able to, on your list of people in the book, are really the people that matter, the movers and shakers. So it's an extraordinary um, um, narrative you have. Okay. Who would you like to add? If you were, were, when you were editing this and putting it together, are there a person or a couple people you thought, gosh, I wish I could have included them? 
Well, the people I haven't interviewed yet, I, I know, but I haven't interviewed Mark Zuckerberg. I've met, but I don't really know Elon Musk, and they have pretty good stories, I would say. Um, I would say I have interviewed President Donald Trump before he was president. Um, I interviewed him at the, as the president of the Economic Club of Washington. I invited him down. He told me in the green room he was going to run for president. And I said, president of what? He said, president of the United States. I said, there's no way you're going to be president of the United States. I'd like to interview him after he's been president of the United States or as soon as I can. He did tell me he would let me interview him again. Um, but I also think about people I wish I could have interviewed who aren't living now. Now, think about this. The interview format kind of came around as entertainment or information, maybe in the, the night, uh, because of the Tonight Show in the 1950s when Jack Parr was beginning this and then other people, um, Steve Allen, actually, uh, Steve Allen and Jack Parr, and then Johnny Carson and so forth. Then other people made the whole life out of being an interview, afternoon interview, interview shows. But a uh, hundred years ago, a thousand years ago, there was no interview shows. So we have no interviews with Julius Caesar, no interviews with Charlemagne, no interviews with Henry VIII, no interviews with Abraham Lincoln. So as a historian, I'm sure you would like to sit down and interview Abraham Lincoln. I would love to interview some of these people and ask them questions like, uh, you know, if you, if you ask Henry VIII, Henry VIII, they'd say, uh, why didn't you just get a prenup agreement as opposed to killing all these wives of yours? <laughs> or ask uh, Cleopatra, who was a better lover, Julius Caesar or Mark Antony? Um, or, you know, things like, uh, things like that. So don't, you'd love to be able to ask, or William Shakespeare, uh, who actually wrote these plays for you? So, uh, you know, but it will never actually get the answer. So I'm trying to spend time interviewing people that I, you know, I can get to and that I know and um, hopefully, but I'm, my main goal is to educate people and inspire younger people to say, look what this person did, overcoming handicaps and challenges. I can do the same. Well, you've definitely done that. It's an amazing book. Thank you. We really trust you at New York Historical Society. Take care, my friend. Thank you, Doug. On behalf of the New York Historical Society, thank you for joining us for another episode of For the Ages, a history podcast hosted by David Rubenstein. We hope you enjoyed it and come back for more. Thanks for your support. You can share your thoughts at public.programs at nyhistory.org.